Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 36. Last time we looked at Incheon, that celebrated campaign which cemented Douglas MacArthur's legend, but which threw up as many questions as it provided solutions. With the North Korean People's Army evidently on the back foot, with Seoul falling back into Allied hands and Syngmanry back in power by the end of September, the key question seemed to be, why stop now? For generations of historians since, the criticism always seemed to fall on MacArthur, or at the very least upon Washington, for insisting on pushing forward after the liberation of South Korea, even when signals were received from Mao Zedong that the People's Republic of China would respond. Just as surely as the United States would revolt against the idea of a Soviet presence in Cuba, so too, a decade earlier, could the Chinese be expected to act if the Americans securely established themselves on the Chinese doorstep. If September had been the key month for military strategy, 
Then October was the month for political decisions on all sides. In the tense conversations between Stalin and Mao, the Korean question dominated. How exactly was Mao persuaded to intervene? And did it have much to do with the advance of the UN forces past the 38th parallel? Or was it due more to the complexities of Mao's negotiations with the Soviets? In this episode, we'll see how Mao ends up compromising his initial plans for the Korean War and intervenes after having his bluff called by Moscow. The passage of a British-sponsored resolution in the UN General Assembly calling for the further advancement over the 38th parallel And yes, I said British-sponsored resolution. This was passed on the 7th of October, and it piled more pressure on Mao, and it allowed Stalin to watch his carefully laid plans come into fruition. As we'll learn in this episode, though, the context of Mao Zedong's decision to commit his people's volunteer army is impossible to grasp unless we familiarise ourselves with the relevant actors. In this episode, the focus is on the Sino-Soviet aspect of the question of Chinese intervention, but next time the role Truman and MacArthur played will come under our microscope. With that made clear then, I will now take you to late September 1950, where a very angry Chinese minister was responding to the American policy of deliberately making Beijing's world as small as possible. The song of the week is brought to you by 1956. That's right, folks, 1956 has hit a new stride recently. We are looking at the Suez Crisis, and 20 episodes of this very special series could be yours for just $5 a month. For the next year or so, or coming close to a year at least, we will be recounting the story of the Suez Crisis, what happened and why, and who you should be caring about and why. It really is a fascinating story, and it's one of those events in history that really, the When Diplomacy Fails formula just works so well within it. There's controversy, conspiracy, calamity, catastrophe, so many other words beginning with C, but there's so much going on, and I really think that if any of this stuff, any of this kind of Korean War era, Cold War, early Cold War era stuff, is something you're interested in, the events that take place six years after this, really do tick the box as well. So make sure to check out those two episodes that came out for free just before this one, and you'll be able to tell then whether or not the Suez Crisis is for you. If you are interested, make sure to go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, where, by parting with your fiver, you can access a whole new world of history. Alrighty, so the song of the week this week is Sister Susie's Sewing Shirts by Al Johnson. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode 36 of the Korean War. Sister Susie sewing in the kitchen on a singer. There's miles and miles of flannel on the floor and on the stairs. And father says it's rotten, getting mixed up with a cotton. And sitting on the needles that he leaves upon the chairs. And should you knock at our front door? Mother says, come inside, and if you ask where Susie is, she says, with a loving cry, Sister Susie sewing shirt for soldiers, but still at sewing shirts are shy young sister Susie shows. 
some soldiers send the thistles, saying they'd sooner sleep on thistles. Then the saucy, soft, short shirt for soldiers, Sister Susie sold. Sister Susie sewing shirt for soldiers. The chill at the wing shirts our shy young sister to be shown. Some soldiers send the thistles, saying they'd sooner sleep on thistles. Then the fluffy, soft, short shirt for soldiers, Sister Susie sold. Zhou Enlai was not happy. As Foreign Secretary for the People's Republic of China, Zhou had endured a very tense, eventful last few years in his position, from confirming the defeat of the Republic of China and attempting to rouse diplomatic support for Mao Zedong's communist regime to an excruciating experience as the Sino-Soviet alliance was finally hammered out. That alliance had once appeared like the crowning glory of his achievements, but ever since that date in the middle of February 1950, when the alliance was first made public knowledge, Zhou Enlai's workload had only gotten much bigger. The latest set of circumstances which greeted him in late September 1950 concerned the American successes in Korea, or perhaps it was more acceptable to call them United Nations successes. Zhou Enlai didn't care very much for the correct term. What he did care about was the prospect of supreme allied victory all the way up the Korean peninsula, an outcome which would easily jeopardise China's Asian interests and threaten her security. For a time, the sounds from Washington had appeared calming, almost appeasing, yet ever since the landings at Incheon and the week or so afterward, the tone of the Truman administration towards its Chinese neighbours in Korea had taken a nosedive. As part of a set of diplomatic offensives, the People's Republic of China was suddenly excluded from the inner workings of the United Nations, thanks to a campaign directly against allowing Beijing to have a seat in the General Assembly of the United Nations. Worse, Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist Chinese leader, holding out on Taiwan, had hit the jackpot, and his officials made use of the sympathy they gained from this campaign to win positions on several important committees within the UN, and a vice presidency of the United Nations General Assembly to boot. Speaking of Chiang Kai-shek, that imperialist puppet, I'm using the communist term here, had been granted his stay of execution precisely because of the American aid, and he was now also able to benefit from the newly proposed peace deal for Japan. This would apparently grant Japan new diplomatic and military independence, and enable her to rearm. As a final snub to the People's Republic of China, the ending of the peace treaty stage of the American occupation of Japan meant that Japan and all of its related issues, including Taiwan, became considerations of the American government rather than the United Nations. The settlement of some kind of peace treaty in Japan would supersede the previous Cairo and Potsdam conferences, enabling the United States to completely bypass the United Nations and, of course, the People's Republic of China as the Americans settled their affairs in the way that pleased them the most 
in Meadows' backyard. On top of this initiative came the news that Britain and the Americans were supporting proposals for the General Assembly, which would suggest that the war in Korea would be carried on until the peninsula was unified underneath the UN's flag, whereupon democratic elections in the whole of Korea would follow. Any hopes that the war would end with a status quo antebellum arrangement, an outcome which would not require any Chinese intervention whatsoever, and which could even allow Mao to engineer some kind of bloodless coup in North Korea in the future through diplomacy, were all up in flames. These successive diplomatic assaults on the interests of the People's Republic of China had the appearance of deliberate initiative against her security, and neither Zhou Enlai nor Mao Zedong were willing to stand for such insults. Zhou ordered a statement issued on the 24th of September, the day after the proposals on Korea were learned of, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs delivered the following acidic statement to the world and through the Communist Chinese Foreign Ministry, saying, We Chinese people are against the American imperialists because they are against us. They have openly become the archenemy of the PRC by supporting the people's enemy, the Chiang Kai-shek clique by sending a huge fleet to prevent the liberation of the Chinese territory of Taiwan, by repeated air intrusions and strafing and bombing of the Chinese people, by refusing New China a seat in the United Nations, through intrigues with their satellite nations, by rearing up again a fascist power in Japan, and by rearming Japan for the purpose of expanding aggressive war. Is it not just for us to support our friend and neighbour against our enemy? The American warmongers are mistaken in thinking that their accusations and threats will intimidate the people of China. If a peace treaty establishing the status quo antebellum in Korea was impossible, then this idea of supporting our friend and neighbour was certainly a veiled reference to the alternative. Every day, Stalin seemed to have new bad news for Mao Zedong regarding the situation in Korea. Of course, Stalin was very comfortable by now to watch his carefully crafted plan pan out. Having encouraged, supported and pushed Kim Il-sung to invade, Stalin had proved an embarrassingly bad friend to Pyongyang. The evidence that Stalin removed key personnel, that he neglected to provide critical equipment like bridge-making tools for crying out loud, and that he took control of Kim Il-sung's direction of the war only to deliberately sabotage it, all that evidence is there. Considering the fact that Kim was powerless to do or say anything without Stalin's tacit approval, the question we come to regarding this situation is one of why. Why, if Stalin was Kim's ally, would he set him up to fail so disastrously? And why, now that he was evidently in danger of falling victim to this Allied counterattack, would Stalin do so little to save Kim? Indeed, Stalin never explicitly stated that he wanted either for the offensive of the North Korean People's Army to fail or that he intended to leave Kim deliberately in the lurch. It is only from his behaviour that we can judge and assess what Stalin did and make some sense of it. For someone used to getting what he wanted, if Stalin wanted to act with force in Korea, then he could have done so. He was doing so, of course, right up to the point that the war actually broke out. The point I would make is that Stalin failed to defend Kim Il-sung because he never intended to properly defend him. Kim and Mao were both pawns that Stalin could use to better his own position by drawing America and the United Nations into the fray. The critical point to remember is that Stalin did underestimate the United States. He underestimated the capacity of Washington to arm itself and to adapt to the circumstances. Rather than suffer any kind of lasting damage or debt from the Korean War, the American military-industrial complex 
would be supercharged because of it, and, I would argue, all because of an unwittingly helpful Stalin. But back to Stalin himself, and because his mission was now to compel Mao to intervene on Kim's behalf, but for the Soviet Union to remain aloof itself at the same time, it's very amusing to see the exchange of cables between both sides. When he first urged Mao to get involved, Mao replied two days later on the 18th of September, and reasoned that since Kim hadn't asked for his help, well, he couldn't very well give it. Furthermore, Mao claimed that China's ambassador in Pyongyang, who had only arrived in the middle of August, had very poor contacts with the North Korean government, and was, furthermore, absolutely in the dark when it came to the question of the North Korean people's war effort and command structure. To this, Stalin replied almost immediately, signifying his quest to inject the Chinese into the conflict before Kim's regime was snuffed out. Stalin reasoned that, indeed, it was unfortunate that Kim and Mao's contacts had been so poor, but that this was due to the fact that Kim's regime was young and inexperienced, as Stalin put it, and that Kim had failed to provide Mao with any pieces of military intelligence because of difficulties in his own command rather than his reluctance to share this kind of information. Adding to the tone of the letter, Stalin claimed that he too had often received some odd and perhaps belated reports from the frontline situation. The North Koreans, Stalin seemed to be saying to Mao, were just a young republic of comrades that did things a bit haphazardly and unusually, but that was no reason to consider them anything other than friends, don't you know? If they were suspicious about this presentation by Stalin, then the Chinese didn't overtly show it. Instead, it was in the covert sphere that Mao acted. By this point, his agents were already fighting the campaign for Kim Il-sung's mind. Their ambassador had wrested from Kim a commitment to fight a protracted guerrilla war against the West, which would negate any need for immediate Chinese intervention. But Stalin, too, was already on the case. He needed Kim to ask, even to plead for help from the Chinese, if his plans were to be successful, so he sent a diplomatic mission to Pyongyang. On the 26th of September, a member of this mission was reporting to Stalin on the deteriorating situation in North Korea, and how the North Korean People's Army was essentially falling apart. Noting on North Korea's lack of truck drivers to move the badly needed supplies to those units that continued fighting, a General Zakharov of the Soviet mission observed to Stalin that it may be expedient to propose to Kim Il-sung that he asked the Chinese friends to dispatch not less than 1,500 drivers to Korea, may it not? Stalin was confident that as his prospects grew worse, Kim would see sense and appeal to Mao, whereupon Mao would be morally obliged to aid his communist brethren in the struggle, and Stalin's work would be done. As Allied forces gathered for an assault on Seoul on the 23rd of September, a little over a week since the Incheon landings had come to pass, the pressure increased upon Mao to act as Kim Il-sung sweated. As Stalin ranted and raved about the grave errors of the North Korean People's Army, or of the rank incompetence of some of the Soviet advisers on their failure to follow orders, what he neglected to mention was that he had issued, through the North Korean High Command, a directive which demanded the entirety of the North Korean People's Army in South Korea to retreat northwards, including those still boxing in General Walker's men in the Pusan perimeter. With the North Korean withdrawal, which soon descended into a rout, Walker's 8th Army was able to push northward at lightning speed, capturing many segments of the fleeing northerners in their wake. Incidentally, 
Stalin had taken one last opportunity to sow confusion in the ranks of Kim's forces. By ordering this mass retreat, Stalin also ensured that Walker's 8th Army would surge up the peninsula and join with MacArthur's force that had landed at Inchon a week before and was now attacking Seoul. Further insincere attacks on the performance of the North Korean People's Army and the Soviet advisers continued to pour from Stalin's cunning mind, giving the impression that he loathed the sight of the northern collapse when in fact he had an active hand in it. Who else would have been foolish enough to so sabotage the North Korean People's Army in its different hours of need? No military leader in their right mind, let alone one in pursuit of victory, would have conducted the northern assault and then its self-defence as the North did in 1950 as they threw away every advantage, jeopardised their successes and increased their vulnerability. Of course, Stalin was not pursuing victory. He was pursuing a specific foreign policy objective which demanded Chinese intervention. On the 27th of September, concluding that their military situation was in tatters, Kim Il-sung and company seemed poised to finally request that Mao stick his nose in their business at last. Now this bit is important, guys, because it was during the first two weeks of October 1950 that Mao Zedong decided to intervene in the Korean War. This decision came in stages, and as a policy objective, the aim to turn North Korea into a Chinese satellite was actually the second best outcome for Mao. Considering the circumstances, though, making Kim Il-sung into a Chinese rather than a Soviet satellite was a positive result. As we've seen in the past... Mao was eager to get the Soviets on side. The very terms of the Sino-Soviet alliance had stipulated the extent to which Moscow would provide certain material and monies to bring the People's Republic on par with the West. Mao desperately wanted this support to continue and indeed to escalate if Stalin expected him to intervene on Kim's side. Only with Soviet air support, after all, and the promise of further war material, could the Chinese be expected to supply and fit their hundreds of thousands of men. It is often claimed in the histories that Mao lamented the sight of Stalin, eventually reneging on his promises to supply these to Mao, and that Beijing was immensely peeved at the extent to which Moscow absolved itself of the war. Yet to this it has to be added that Mao's first objective was to bring the Soviets into conflict with the West. An American-Soviet proxy war in Korea, as per the terms of NSC 76 if you'll remember, was not in fact possible, since as per the terms of that document, significant Soviet involvement in Korea wouldn't result in greater American involvement in the peninsula to counter it, but a retreat from the region and the eruption of World War III. In other words, there would be no version of Chinese volunteers in the Soviet camp. Stalin wouldn't be able to send Soviet volunteers to Korea, because if he did, then the Americans would see through it and they would escalate the situation. Too much was at stake, you see, to treat Stalin like Mao. Considering the extent of Stalin's intelligence network, it is highly likely that Stalin appreciated Washington's policy going forward. A limited Chinese involvement wouldn't create World War III, whereas similar Soviet behaviour would. Aside from this, Korea was of little actual interest to Stalin strategically. The reason he had instigated the war had always revolved around the aim of alienating the Chinese from the West, not becoming involved with it himself. As a master manipulator in diplomacy, moreover, Stalin knew that he held a far stronger hand than Mao did, and he refused to let up on his end goal. Under these circumstances, Stalin was not about to provoke the Americans, and so he withdrew from Mao's trap. 
thus spurned, now would have his bluff called as the UN forces edged ever closer to the Manchurian border, and eventually he felt compelled to intervene even without Stalin's pledge to provide our support. Mao thus settled for second best and moved to turn the situation in North Korea into a favourable one with China, making lemonade out of lemons, basically, with the establishment of a communist satellite on the Manchurian border. For the remainder of this episode, we will examine the complex negotiations between Stalin, Mao and Kim, which led to the decision in mid-October in the Chinese leadership to intervene in the Korean War. Before we do that though, I have two things I want to add to the narrative of this story. The first contains two audio clips I'd like you guys to listen to, wherein different experts on communism and the Soviet-Chinese relationship in this period in history talk about whether or not Mao was merely a subordinate of Stalin, or whether he was instead his own man. Listen to these two and see what you think. They are, as always, from the archive.org section, and can be freely accessed by anyone, but I really do feel they add to the story. So here you go. Now, Kenneth de Corsi is the publisher of a British newsletter. His most publicized feat, the prediction of Russia's possession of the atomic bomb. In Washington this week, he told newsmen... I have very good reason for believing that Nazi Tung is the second man in the Soviet Empire in the estimation of Stalin. I have heard from very authoritative quarters that Stalin regards Nazi Tung as his second man. We are constantly talking about other personalities in the Politburo and in Russia as the second man or the third man or whatever it may be. But I think that the real fact of the matter is that the man next to Stalin in the whole Soviet Empire is Nazi Tung. And I think we shall see that he is going to fulfill a very, very vital role in Soviet strategy. So that's what one figure thinks about it. But here is the repose, wherein a prominent Chinese nationalist figure, who would, in theory at least, know Mao better, argues the reverse. Is Mao Zedong second in command, true or false? False, according to nationalist China's UN delegate, Dr. Tsiang. On Thursday, he gave his opinion that Mao Zedong was just a social climber in the hierarchy of communism. The difficulty in the whole problem is that Mao Zedong in Peking fancies that he has been made junior partner in the imperial firm of Stalin and Mao. Mr. President, if we wish to understand the real meaning of Peking's intervention in Korea, we can only find it in Moscow's pattern of world conquest. So now that we've covered that aspect, I want to cover the second point, and this point, well, first of all, you should know it's off script, so I'll try and cut down any rambling as best as I can, but it also contains some audio detail too, so it should be a good bit engaging for you guys. During the course of doing this Korean War series, it it should be noted that I've never been called anti-American or anything else, which is good, I do appreciate that, but I am aware that sometimes I don't really criticize Stalin as much as I should, You even heard earlier on I called him a master manipulator, but in the context of diplomacy, that could sometimes come across as a good thing. I mean, you could surely say the same about Bismarck. Bismarck was a master manipulator, and you all know how I feel about him. In case you did not know, guys, I absolutely abhor Stalin. I think he was a vile, disgusting creature, and I absolutely do not think that his actions in the Korean War were in any way on par with those of Truman's. Both Truman and Stalin wanted to get something out of the Korean War, 
but at least you could say about Truman that he was a decent human being. And even while the Korean War and the policy I believed Truman pursued within it, even though that wasn't the most morally sound course to pursue, I do believe that it was necessary in some way at least. Now, not in every way, I'm not saying that the Korean War was inherently a good thing, but to see what the Americans got out of it. They were able to compete with the Soviets during the Korean War, and they were able to compete with the Soviets during the Cold War. And the end result of the Americans being supercharged enough to combat Soviet and communist influence around the world, and then win the Cold War in the end, don't forget, I believe that is an inherently good thing. I think that had the Americans not done the Korean War episode, then they might not have been as well prepared as they were in the end to defeat the communist Soviets and basically win the Cold War. Basically what I'm saying here is not that the Korean War was a necessary evil, but that the Americans weren't evil for doing it, if that makes sense. I know that you don't always need to hear this exposition from me, but I just wanted to clear it up because I've gotten a few emails, one in particular from a much appreciated listener called Jack Kane, and I haven't actually replied to his email, but I thought that I'd just reply to it in person here. Thank you for your email, Jack, and you should know that even though sometimes it might come across as though I consider Stalin and Truman to be somewhat the same in, in terms of their motivations and manipulations, I absolutely do not consider Stalin and Truman to be the same. Stalin was a terrible human being. He was disgusting. And I have absolutely no time for anyone who tries to argue that Stalin was a good man or that he did good things or that the things that he gained somehow were worth all the millions and millions of lives that he ended. I hate Stalin. I hate Stalinism. And you should, of course, know that I'm not the only one. I'm going to play two clips here. The first is from Gladwin Jeb, who is the British ambassador to the United Nations, and he was talking about how Stalinism, in his view, was morally wrong. So have a listen to that. Stalinism is, for instance, undoubtedly a good method for producing an army and the necessary modern equipment. More particularly in a backward country, it may also be quite a good method for accomplishing vast public works, at whatever cost in the inhuman sacrifice. This kind of dictatorship can also, of course, improve the condition of certain sections of the population, that is to say, in practice, the new privileged classes, to quite a large extent, and can thereby, obviously, hope to secure the loyalty of at least some intelligent people who may be disillusioned about communism, but at any rate know on which side their bread is buttered. The general apparatus, indeed, of Stalinism is clumsy and brutal, but to some extent, it works, at any rate in Russia. What is essentially wrong with it is that it is inhuman and consequently morally wrong. And it is for that reason, and for that reason only, that if there is any virtue in our own democratic faith, Stalinism is bound, in the long run, to found it. Okay, so the second one, the second clip here, is from Clement Attlee, the British Prime Minister of the leader of the Labour Party for, until 1951. Let's see what he had to say about communism. Communist activities are generally camouflaged. In this country, they can generally get a few respectable but misguided people to provide the sheep's clothing. But you know, a denial by a communist doesn't carry very much weight. The obvious fact is that the whole thing is bogus. And no one ought to be so simple as to be deceived. 
All this elaborate make-believe is an attempt to trick decent, honest people. It's an appeal by the wolves to get the sheep to demonstrate against the use of shepherds and sheepdogs. <laughs> I rarely, if ever, let my political views bleed into these series, guys. That's because I don't want to do that. But in case you weren't aware, I hate Stalin. I think he was a disgusting creature. And I'm very, very glad that the Americans won the Cold War. I think that the world is a better place without the Soviet Union in it, despite Russia's current flaws. And if anyone was to ask me, the first thing I would say is that Stalin is probably one of the worst characters to come out of the 20th century, if not all of human history. He's got a lot to answer for, and so do his apologists. In any case, before we get all wrapped up any further, let's continue on with the story. You wanted to know what I thought about Stalin? You wanted to know how I really felt about Truman? That's how I feel. Alrighty, so throughout the countdown to Chinese intervention, the situation in Korea remained paramount in Mao's considerations. The situation in Korea, after all, would determine how quickly or slowly the Chinese would have to intervene. There was a strong sense that allowing the Allies to advance too far up the peninsula, and even into Manchuria, would be disastrous. For strategic purposes, it was critical that some kind of defensive line was established in the mountainous, hard scrabble provinces that straddled the Sino-Korean border. Concern for the strategic position of Chinese troops, and the belief in the importance of laying down some kind of defensive line, would be put into full effect by the time that the Chinese intervention was launched in its full form in late November 1950. By that point, while it appeared to be akin to chaos, the horrific casualties incurred by the Chinese human wave tactics obscured the fact that the assault had been launched from a set of well-entrenched positions established and reinforced in the previous month. While it wasn't until the middle of October that the decision to send troops into Korea was announced within Mao's circle, the first few days of October were heavy with meetings and intrigue as the cables from Stalin filtered in, and Mao hosted several meetings on the 1st, 2nd, 4th and 5th of that month. On the first two days, not everyone relevant was yet present, but Mao still asked those that were in the room how quickly they believed a Chinese response could be formulated. Mao felt comfortable enough to send a cable to his commander in Manchuria, asking whether it would be possible to begin operations immediately. Mao then informed those present that, notwithstanding the meetings planned with additional Chinese officials over the next few days, he felt compelled to send a cable to Stalin, pointing to the general Chinese intention to send troops into Korea on the 15th of October. Had the date been set for Chinese intervention? In actual fact, Mao did not send this news to Stalin, and what was more, Mao knew full well, in spite of his declared intention, that he would have to face the music soon enough. If he had made up his mind personally, Mao still had to present this decision to his comrades, and it was in a two-day process of meetings with several high-ranking Chinese officials that the case was most completely made for intervention in Korea over the 4th to 5th of October 1950. These meetings were tense, stormy affairs. There was no sense of meekly bowing to Mao's infinite wisdom. The idea that the People's Republic of China would engage in a major war with the United States was considered baffling and unnecessary to most of those assembled. The important point to note is that even while Mao may have tolerated differences of opinion, this was only because it was he who had the last word. The picture against intervention did seem damning though despite Mao's stance. The crux of the argument put it that America was more advanced in their manufacturing and military capabilities 
and it added that the People's Republic was a new regime, in need of time and space to properly reinforce its authority, particularly when some remnants of the old Republican regime existed on Taiwan still. Mao had prepared the way to counter these arguments. First, he emphasised the moral argument of international communist brotherhood. What you said sounds reasonable, Mao granted his comrades, but added that it would be shameful for us to stand by seeing our neighbours in perilous danger without offering any help. Mao then produced something of an ace, the informed opinion of a military expert who agreed with his perspective. The man tasked with commanding the Chinese volunteers in Korea, Peng Duhui, was trotted out to claim that the superior Chinese manpower would overcome the Americans. If we can avoid committing serious mistakes in our strategy and tactics, Peng said, we could be confident of beating the American aggressor's troops. Mao then combined Peng's subsequent comments on the strategic situation with a handy tool of his own, anti-Americanism. Considering Truman's erratic foreign policy towards the Chinese, it isn't hard to grasp why Mao would feel so insulted and endangered by American behaviour. First, consider the fact that before the Sino-Soviet Pact had been signed, American policy towards the Chinese was aimed at somehow pacifying Beijing. Second, the policy which followed the signing of the alliance in February required additional hostility towards China. And third, the outbreak of the Korean War resulted in the sending of an American fleet in between the Taiwan Straits, in direct contradiction to what the Americans had said they would do the previous year. We have to add to all these factors the additional underlying theme from Beijing that Mao consistently underestimated the hostility which the Truman administration held towards any notions of a Sino-Soviet alliance. He never seemed to realise exactly how imperiled the Americans would feel if the two biggest communist states in the world combined themselves. When their attempts to foil that alliance failed, Washington switched its policy into forcing the two communist states together, literally pushing them up against each other for several reasons we have seen. But since they never publicly announced NSC 68 to clarify this, Mao assumed it was business as usual. After the outbreak of the Korean War, American policy seemed to change yet again, as cables forwarded to the Chinese became more conciliatory in tone. This, as we know, was simply to ensure that the Chinese didn't intervene while the Allied forces at Pusan were vulnerable. Then, once again, American policy changed in late September when the order of the day became that of compelling the Chinese to intervene after all, rather than preventing such intervention. All of these switches in American foreign policy make sense to us, considering what we know the Americans were trying to do, but they must have confused and angered Mao. But it was that singular act in June of sending their 7th fleet to the Taiwan Straits that remained most prominent in Mao's thinking. According to both Mao and Zhou Enlai, the question of war with America was not when, but when it would be most advantageous to the Chinese. War with America, Mao conceded, was inevitable once that fleet intervened militarily in China's civil war and prevented him from closing the trap on Chiang Kai-shek. In late September, Zhou Enlai had clarified to the Politburo that For us, the Korean question is not simply a question concerning Korea. It is related to the Taiwan issue. The US imperialists have adopted a hostile approach towards us and set up their defence line in the Taiwan Strait while paying lip service to non-aggression and non-intervention. From the information we got, they wanted to calm China first, and after occupying North Korea, they will come to attack China. Now before his peers on the 4th of October, 
Joe Enlai added to this argument in support of the interventionists, saying, With the decisive duel between China and the United States imperialists being inevitable, the question is where to do it. Of course, it is decided by the imperialists, but in some sense also by us. Korea as a battleground chosen by the imperialists is favourable to us. Looking at three battlefronts, it is easy to understand that it would be much more difficult to wage war against America in Vietnam, not to mention on the offshore islands, than here in Korea. Here we have the most favourable terrain, the closest communication to China, the most convenient material and manpower backup, and the most convenient way for us to get indirect Soviet support. I do think we need to look at the fact that they emphasised how difficult a war with America and Vietnam would be, considering how we know the Vietnam War went. But in any case, a further use for Mao's interventionist argument was the idea that the Americans could not be trusted, no matter what happened. While the People's Republic had been assured that, upon reaching the Yalu River border, America would not continue the attack into actual China, the same administration had promised not to cross the 38th parallel only the week before, and, to beat a dead horse again, they had also promised that they wouldn't intervene in the Chinese Civil War, only to put their ships in between Mao and Chiang Kai-shek at a critical time. We will deal with these messages and the American decision to cross the 38th in the next episode, and that should fill in some blanks as to why the Chinese felt under pressure here to act. Remember, of course, that as per Truman's plan, the pressure being placed upon the Chinese was a critical part of the policy to compel China to intervene in Korea. The other critical aspect of the pressure campaign was, of course, launched by Mao's ally, Joseph Stalin. The process by which Mao became convinced that China would have to intervene in the Korean War wasn't straightforward, consistent or sensible. Even in early November, when plans for Chinese intervention had been laid, Mao was agreeable to notions of discussing peace treaties, and he seemed to vacillate between different policy aims in the meantime. When he did settle on intervention, it was on the basis that it could not be avoided under the circumstances, and that the Americans posed a real threat to the PRC if they managed to install themselves on the border with Manchuria. A united Korea would always be unstable, and Mao preferred one which was divided, as it had been before the war, but this time with Beijing rather than Moscow controlling the north. Mao's success, if we can call it that, is found in the current political alignment of North Korea in the world. Pyongyang in 2018 leans towards the People's Republic of China, as everyone knows, just as it did in the aftermath of the Korean War in 1953. However, this achievement of a pliant buffer on the border with Manchuria was a consolation prize for Mao's diplomacy, rather than the first thing he actually wanted. What Mao had desired, if peace or a status quo antebellum arrangement was impossible, was to draw Stalin into a war of attrition in Korea alongside him, or even without Chinese intervention at all, if that was possible. To do so, though, Mao would essentially have to call Stalin's bluff. He would have to allow the Allies to advance up the Korean peninsula, even while it was apparent that the closer to the border with Manchuria they got, the more unnerved Mao became. Stalin knew this, as did Washington. And so while Mao tried to wait for a time, as Stalin's cables urging action came in within the first week of October, the pressure on Mao eventually did become too much, as Stalin had hoped. Indeed, it seems that while he waited to see if the Soviets would contribute something to the war, 
May became so concerned at the looming military superiority of the United Nations in North Korea that he felt compelled to urgently commit himself to the fray. Mao had always criticised American foreign policy towards China, yet by the 2nd of October he became convinced that while the destruction of Kim Il-sung's regime would be beneficial for his political ambitions in Korea, the unopposed advance of the Allies to the border with Manchuria would not. Mao was all for changing Kim's political orientation and loyalties, which required the military destruction of Kim's regime, and the act of Pyongyang literally begging Beijing for aid to allow the UN to establish itself in great force along the Manchurian border, or to set up a new government in Korea, would represent a permanent knife to the industrial heartland of China, and an opportunity for the Americans, at any time in the future, to pressure Beijing with intervention or atomic strikes if they didn't comply. These were the set of arguments which seemed to have persuaded Mao that intervention for Kim was necessary, but they were solidified and reinforced by several actual events, including the passage of a resolution through the United Nations General Assembly on the 7th of October 1950 that approved the advancement of the Allies over the 38th parallel and into North Korea. This British-sponsored resolution will receive more attention from us in the next episode, in line with our analysis of the Chinese relations towards the West during this period. The day after this resolution was passed... By 47 to 5, with 7 abstaining, on the 8th of October, Mao renamed his Northeast Border Defence Army in Manchuria to the Chinese People's Volunteers, signifying that he was preparing the way forward for a strike against UN forces under the loopholes provided by international relations. These volunteers, you'll remember, a suggestion of Stalin's, would not only enable Mao to strike at the UN without having to declare war on America, but because of this fact, Stalin would find himself freed from the terms of the Sino-Soviet alliance, since that alliance stipulated for Soviet military assistance for China's defence in the event of war being declared against Beijing, the undeclared war against Mao's volunteers provided Moscow with a handy get-out-of-Korea-free card. By the time Mao realised this and the penny had dropped, he would be furious, but from the 8th of October, Mao focused on intently readying this loophole for battle, with or without Stalin's aid. On the same day that Zhou Enlai set out for Moscow, Mao cabled Kim letting him know that he would send him military aid, without stating a precise timetable. Kim was overjoyed, and as he was wont to do, he cabled Stalin underlining Mao's pledge, while also requesting air assistance and advisors for training tank commanders. By doing so, though, Kim greatly undercut Mao's bargaining position. For the first half of October, Mao was engaged in a tug-of-war with Stalin as he pressured him for supplies. Mao's greatest bargaining chip before had been the threat that he wouldn't intervene in the conflict. But now that Kim had let slip Mao's pledge, Stalin knew that this was false. Now Mao wouldn't be able to sell his intervention to Stalin based on how much supplies or military assistance Stalin would give him, because Stalin knew that either way, Mao had pledged himself to intervene already. Just as the Chinese foreign minister was en route to meet him then, Stalin already had some serious leverage over his ally, and he was characteristically determined to make good use of it. On the 10th of October 1950, Zhou Enlai, his assistant, Stalin, and several of the high-ranking members of Stalin's circle all took part in a meeting regarding the Korean situation. Stalin must have been amused by Zhou's claim that We think it better not to send troops 
when he knew very well, owing to Kim's enthusiastic cable of two days before, that sending troops was exactly what Mao intended to do. Nevertheless, Stalin seemed in a cooperative mood, reasoning that, If China can send a certain amount of troops, then we would provide weapons and equipment. And adding that all-important concession, During the fighting, we can provide a certain number of uh, aircraft for ground support. Stalin did claim that it was important for the sake of avoiding very negative international repercussions that the Americans and everyone else did not find out about this arrangement. But for a brief moment, Zhou Enlai was comforted. Zhou Enlai's mission, after all, had been to ensure that Stalin committed the air force and support necessary to sustain the Chinese intervention. Joe would use the threat of non-intervention if Stalin held back, but of course, as we said, Stalin knew that Mao had already notified Kim of his intentions to intervene. It cannot be understated enough how much this undermined Joe's bargaining position. The Chinese foreign secretary essentially had his legs cut out from under him by Mao's carelessness. Furthermore, by appearing to promise air support, etc., at the beginning of the meeting, Joe and Lai was drawn out as to what he would be prepared to guarantee from his side, revealing new information to Stalin about Chinese troops in the process and what they were prepared to do. If knowledge was power, then Stalin could then use the knowledge of Joe's weak bargaining position to ignore his threat to remain inactive. Since China was already planning on intervening, the Chinese essentially had no leverage. By the end of the meeting, Joe noted to his despair that Stalin became a great deal more non-committal. Stalin claimed that there had been confusion in translation, but Joe knew better. He asked that Stalin put into writing what he was prepared to actually give the Chinese, and this telegram was sent to Mao. Its contents, which outlined the Soviet Union's actual intentions, landed like a bombshell in Beijing. But to Mao, it meant that he knew the jig was up. The Moscow meeting had been the last real chance to work around the Soviets and to try and wrest from Stalin what the Chinese needed by using the threat of Chinese non-intervention above all. Now that Zhou Enlai was expected to come home, there could be no more delaying as the military situation in North Korea was reaching a fever pitch. On the 13th of October 1950, Mao sent two telegrams, one to Zhou Enlai and one to Stalin. To the former, he sent a summary of what the Chinese would do. To Joseph Stalin, he sent the same message, but in more detail. In both cables, the contents were the same. After two weeks of manoeuvring, Mao was here signifying his willingness to invade North Korea in force. The Chinese would now have to settle for the consolation prize of a reorientation of Kim Il-sung's regime, rather than a blanket guarantee of Soviet support of a Soviet conflict with the United Nations. Without saying it, since to admit such a fact would have been impossible, Mao's commitment to intervene without having hammered out any concrete details or having signed any solid deals with the Soviets to provide aid or air support was a declaration of Soviet victory. In the pressure campaign between the two allies, Stalin had won. Among other things, in his 13th of October cable to Stalin, Mao had said, We are not assured that our troops will be able to annihilate the entire US Army once and for all. But since we have decided to go to war with the Americans, we should be prepared that, when the US High Command musters up one complete army to fight us in the campaign, we should be able to concentrate our forces four times greater than those of the enemy, and to marshal firing power one and a half to two times greater than that of the enemy, so that we can guarantee a complete and thorough destruction of one enemy army. What May was describing here amounted to the argument used by his commander on the 4th of October. 
That being that Chinese manpower was so superior and so numerically advantageous that it would overwhelm anything which lay before it. Consequently, Mao now planned to move these enormous forces into position in North Korea along the mountainous provinces which straddled the Yalu River. Stalin responded with gushing praise to Kim in a handwritten note which stated that The Chinese comrades are so good, they have decided after all to render military assistance to the Korean comrades, regardless of the insufficient armament of the Chinese troops. But Mao's campaign for Stalin's planes was not quite finished. In a final act of defiance, Mao wrote to Zhou Enlai on the 14th of October, saying, We will launch attacks on Pyongyang, Wonsan, and other areas only after our troops are fully equipped and well-trained, as well as having achieved an overwhelming air and land superiority to the enemy's troops. That is to say, that we are not going to consider the question of launching an offensive for six months. If the enemy remains in Pyongyang and Wonsan, Without venturing to make attacks, we may withdraw about half of our troops back to China for training and supplies, and send them back when large-scale campaigns occur. Incredibly then, Mao tried one last effort here to add one last piece of pressure upon Stalin. While he would contribute his men to the fight, Mao signalled that he would not plan or launch any major offensives until the desperately needed Soviet support was received. This would prevent Mao from enmeshing himself in the kind of war of attrition Stalin wanted, especially if his forces only sat menacingly on the border and neglected to engage with the UN forces sufficiently. This would not do for Stalin, but the cynic within Stalin took solace from the strength of his position and the weakness of Mao's. Stalin recognised Mao's threat to take away what he had promised only a day before and basically drip-feed forces to the North Koreans as unlikely, and the result not of a change of heart, but of Mao's search for some face-saving gesture of defiance or leverage. However unlikely Mao's attempts to play Stalin were of succeeding, Stalin was fortunate that, from the middle of October, his work was largely finished. On the 15th of October, General MacArthur would meet with President Truman on Wake Island, suggesting in the process that American military contributions towards Korea were about to receive a major political and military kick. As Stalin faded from view, the true enemy in Mao's mind loomed steadily back into his crosshairs. Next time, guys, this has been a long episode, but next time we'll examine the American side of this fortnight, in other words, the first two weeks of October, and look at how the American policies, deliberately or otherwise, helped to coax Mao into the undeclared war with the West that President Truman's administration required. Until then, though, history, friends, my name is Zach. And you've been listening to the latest installment of the Korean War, episode 36. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 